This is Marketing Trends, your number one source for exclusive interviews with chief marketing officers and executive marketing leaders in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. This is Jeremy Bergeron, and I interview, collaborate, and partner with world-class CMOs and marketing leaders across industries. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron, as always. Now, I'm thrilled to have a very distinguished guest, Dipti Katru, joining us today on Marketing Trends. Let me give you a little bit of flex on Dipti because this is actually a marketing executive I have been following for a while. Dipti is currently steering the marketing helm as the global chief marketing officer at Broad Ridge Financial Solutions, a leader in fintech innovation, bringing a wealth of experience from her impressive tenure at Chase, where she notably served as the managing director and CMO for JP Morgan Wealth Management and Chase Wealth Management. Dipti has been at the forefront of transforming financial marketing strategies. Her expertise spans across wealth management marketing, digital strategy, of course, client engagement, really making Dipti a visionary in driving growth and innovation in the financial sector. We have an absolute boss in our midst today, folks. Dipti's dynamic leadership and deep understanding of the affluent market have been pivotal in crafting impactful marketing initiatives and enhancing client experiences. Join us today as we delve into insights from her journey, explore the future of fintech marketing, and really position the global CMO at the table for good. Dipti, welcome to the show. Jeremy, you're you're coming along with me as my hype man wherever I go. That was fantastic. And I'm way undeserved, but thank you. Thank you for having oh me. I'm honored goodness. to be here. Absolutely. And that I'm happy to be your hype person. Let me know where we're going first and I'll be I'll be happy to introduce you. Because look, look, your background and your perspective and experience is clear. Um, I, I want to get into all the things, but I, I wanna I wanna start with with really kind of what's happening now because yeah. you're you're leading marketing for Broadridge. And I did a little research. Broadridge, mm-hmm. we're talking about a company that first opened their doors in 1962. Uh, mm-hmm. as a as a as a as an ADP brokerage services group, one yeah. client processing an average of a few hundred trades per night. Mm-hmm. Since then, fast forward, and I hope everybody's sitting down, Broadridge has grown into this independent global fintech leader with six billion in revenue, handling millions of trades, involving trillions, capital T trillions of dollars, support, communications. We're talking about reaching 75% North America. This is a big business. So I want to understand what's on top for you right now. What's it like leading marketing there? And for those who don't know about Broadridge, tell everybody what this business is all about. It's great. Well, thanks for all your research. Listen, you're right. Broadridge is probably an organization that most people haven't heard of, but we but but we touch most investors across North America and all over the world. We essentially are a financial technology company that sits in the intersection of financial services. What we do is our technology, our data, our intelligence, our solutions power investing, powers communications, powers corporate governance. And so we have this very critical role to play, but we're sort of under the hood of financial services. And that's what makes my job as a marketer exciting, which is how do we get our clients and influencers across the financial services arena 
from C-suite to CTOs to COOs to CFOs to understand what we do, the impact we have, and how we've been continuing to drive the industry forward from our days of opening as as ADP. So you have a a deep back background in financial services and marketing. Mm-hmm. We're going to touch on that. We're going to talk about yeah. your time at Chase. I want to get into that, but I want to hear about just your perspective about the opportunity from the outside looking in, in the early, yeah. like when Broadbridge became on your radar, what did yeah. you notice about this business? What excited yeah. you about this business? Then take us into your first couple of months there in the role and some of the things you were able to do. Yeah. So just to give you a little bit of perspective and, you know, I, I got to know Broadridge when I was still at JP Morgan. We were a client. We actually used Broadridge for a couple of our capabilities. But it was only when I started to talk to them about the CMO role that I understood that I knew maybe a small side to Broadridge. And there was so much more that this organization did. And that was my first insight as a marketer, that the brand didn't necessarily tell its full story and didn't represent its credibility and sort of scale in its true form. And then as I started to explore the brand, there were sort of two things that really stuck out to me. One was the first one, which was the storytelling side of it. Are we taking claim to the brand that we are and the impact that we have? Does the industry understand and appreciate the work we do and what sort of that, that delivers in terms of powering and transforming the, the, the industry? The second part of it was what's marketing's role in driving demand and, and driving growth for the business? And that was the other side. In in coming from Chase, I came from a strong performance mindset of marketing. Like marketing was seen as a driver of growth. Uh, I think at Broadridge, what I saw was, you know, we were were strong strategic partners to the business, but there was so much more we could be doing to orchestrate that growth, to drive demand, to build pipeline, to move people through the sales journey, better use of data, technology, digital. And so for me, it was an opportunity to be part of a growing, transforming organization with a great runway, but then help create a step change in the role marketing played in driving them forward. Wow. Now you were at Chase for, was it about 10 years? Is a that decade, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, look, huge, I mean, massive brand at the forefront, mm-hmm. the cutting edge of so many things. Obviously, that time, you know, put some tools in the Dipti tool belt, right? As a marketer oh, yeah. and a marketing leader. Mm-hmm. What, uh, since you talked about it, let's talk about your experience there. I mean, you spent 10 years in a really interesting space at a really interesting time in a brand. I mean, I'm banking with Chase, been banking with them for, gosh, a couple decades, right? So big yeah. fan of, of JP Morgan. But talk yeah. about your experience there, the exposure, the perspective you had, some of the things that you learned there, maybe mm-hmm. a favorite win or a favorite failure too. Like, tell us about that time at JP Morgan. I think my decade at Chase was probably the richest of sort of my marketing schooling. I came into Chase after a good, maybe it was probably a decade of marketing across retail as well as B2B and especially asset management. I spent my early years uh, at JP Morgan on the asset management side, but then set, spent a substantial part on the Chase side, which was back to my retail marketing roots. And there was a few things I learned to do really, really well. I learned, you know, I always thought of myself as a brand marketer. I was sort of, when I started my marketing journey, it was about building great brands. What Chase taught me would have, was how to become not just a brand marketer, but a growth marketer. To think about the role of driving growth, driving business impact, how you do it using data, how data becomes insights, how insights make you a better marketer. So I had a lot of the art. I learned the science and the science at scale, which was incredible. The other thing I learned, I think, was to break through sort of the, the, the barriers of what a marketer's job is. I think at Chase, 
the the ability to sort of really lean in, understand the business, the client, the problems we were trying to solve, and then roll up your sleeves and just get stuff done, uh, became almost freeing because you didn't feel like you were sticking to this little lane of the C, you know the marketers lane or the CMO lane. It was about you were part of a, bu- a business team that was driving better outcomes, that was obsessed about solving problems, that was obsessed about delivering value to the customer. So there was this customer centricity that generally came in and then was also very, very focused on outcome and how you measure that outcome and how you get better. So lots of lots of you know learnings along the way on the journey. So much that I'm so grateful for or that window. And I think your last question was, you know, a favorite story. I think my favorite story was the work I did um, with uh, with a small team. And figuring out, you know, I'd done a lot of work with the affluent audience and we were we were looking at the emerging affluent. And we had some some expectations going in on what this audience wanted. The data was telling us a few things, but there was a small group of us that actually dug deep and unlocked a new banking product that we brought to market at record speed. Uh, only because we started with the data, we stayed very close to the insight, we broke some sort of rules of how to do things and got it done really quickly. So I had sort of a marketer's job, but also a GM's job. And I loved that cross-section of the commercialization, but bringing the marketer's lens to it. Wow. How about a how about a favorite failure there at your time? Something that was like a really tough lesson that set you up to succeed later? Yeah. I mean, listen, we learned every single day. There was, uh, you know, one of the failures, for example, is some of the brand work we were doing with the new digital investing product we were launching. And we were launching this, you know, around the same time as Robinhood was, you know, conquering hearts and minds. Uh, And, you know, the fintech world was exploding and you had these new cool fintechs. And when you thought about sort of our brand insight of who we were as JP Morgan, how do you connect with that, you know, that young millennial who's looking to invest? How do you bring through the ethos of who JP Morgan is, hold on to that, but then become more relevant? And so we kind of, the pendulum started to swing where we wanted to seem cool. And we lost a little bit of sort of the JP Morgan side of the story because we wanted to play in the same spaces as a Robin Hood. And I think that's where we rushed a little bit. We actually went back and rebranded ourselves as JP Morgan Online Investing because the reason people were staying with us was not because we were another Robin Hood. The, people, the reason people were coming to us and staying with us is because we were sort of trusted and, and we were you know, the, the, the J.P. Morgan heritage and what that stood for mm. was deeply valuable in that wow. brand story that we yeah. got away from. Wow. So you see the opportunity at Broadridge. You obviously take that opportunity about two years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I love this question because it, I always hear various answers and I'm always curious about what did you do in your first 90 days, right, as global CMO, right, of Broadridge? Because there's a ton of things. There's a ton of stuff you can do. Yeah. There's a, there's people and customers and listening and meetings. There's also you know CMOs that come in with big strategy and make big changes and hiring and firing and reorging. Yeah. What was your approach? You have a deep history in this business. You're coming into another very big global business to lead marketing globally. What is your approach your first 90 days? What are you doing? Yeah, it's 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 a great question. I'll tell you. There was a little bit of a difference in what I thought I would be doing and what I eventually did. Um, and I'll ah, tell you okay. why. So I think there were two there were two drivers, right? The first, as one would expect, the first 90 days, you're listening and learning. So I was listening and learning. There was no doubt about that. 
I think what I realized pretty early on that the business was so much more complex than I had appreciated. Mm. In what ways? In just the complexity of the breadth of our offerings. Okay. How technical they are. Mm. It takes a while to deeply understand what we sell, who we sell it to, what that sales process looks like, what's working, what's not working. So, you know, there was a little bit of slowing myself down that I didn't realize I would need to do. So I didn't miss the details and the cues. And our CEO, to give him credit, sort of one of the first things I, I asked him this question is, is, you know, what's your guidance? How would you like me to navigate the next, uh, you know, and, and do you see a difference in people who come from the outside and really thrive and don't? And he said, you know, my guidance is don't rush to make any decisions. Mm. And I came from a culture that was high conviction, quick paced decision making, move, 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 get stuff done. Yeah. There was this reorientation of what I thought speed needed to be in terms of making decisions. Wow. And I am deeply grateful for it because I think I, I learned more about the business. I listened a little bit better. It doesn't mean we didn't make changes. We made changes as we needed to. There were some early hypotheses that sort of played out the way I thought it did. Mm. But being able to use the time to learn, to listen, to build trust with my business partners, I think went a long way. I love this because, you know, in a sector that's known for its complexity, mm-hmm. how how did you approach simplifying Broadridge's fintech offerings for a broader audience? What are some of the things you did that you found effective in making complex financial technologies relatable, understandable to you and as you proceeded? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's we're a work in progress. We're, we're not quite there yet. We still continue to be really, really complex. We're just sort of coming off an investor day that we did uh, last week. And I think moments like investor days become really valuable because you're forced to then clarify your message. Mm. Uh, right? You've got to, you're forced to focus on the real drivers of your business, not everything you do, but things that are really going to sort of determine your future, you know, both in terms of growth as well as impact. So part of it is to listen and absorb and understand the drivers of the business, right? From the macro trends of what drives the business to what's driving our growth today, what's going to drive our growth tomorrow. Is everything equally important? We have our 200 products we sell, right? We serve clients across the financial services ecosystem, from asset managers to wealth managers to, you know, corporate issuers to public companies. Like, how do you start to pull a story that's relevant to everybody, but still has depth and differentiation. It is it is a lot harder than I quite appreciated, quite honestly. So that was just sort of trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together to build a level of conviction. I spent a lot of time listening to our our, our leaders on how they talk about us, to our clients and how mm. they experience us. And then mm. we're starting to now connect the dots, and we're we're in the process of simplifying our messaging. But it has been. Uh, there's a level of discipline that's needed because uh, sure. it's easier to be complex than simple because it's easier to add three more sentences to that describes you versus leave it two that really sort of bring it to life. So that's why I say we're, we work in progress. We've been doing, we've, you know, we've started to sort of clarify our message and market, but we're okay. still working and we've got to bring people along on the ride. So we are, we're, we actually are in the process right now where we've got a, we've got a fresh brand narrative that we've just finished articulating. We start, you know, started to bring that to market through our investor day specifically, but we are now spending time with our business leaders to make sure that they feel it, they repeat it, 
becomes part of the DNA of the organization. Do you feel like that it, there's an there's an opportunity to simplify? Like, is that kind of oh, the yeah. angle? And like, oh, okay, yeah. simplify. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. You know, that's an interesting. I think one of my my colleagues on my team sort of brought this this analogy to life. Is we were the way we would talk about ourselves or sort of you know showcase ourselves even things like our website was like a warehouse. Every every product we sold was on the shelf. <laughs> Right, right, right. And what we needed to start to do was to become a showroom, which really pulls the core of what we stand for. It doesn't have to be every single product. It doesn't mean, you know, one product's more important than the other, but it just means that there's a way to simplify and showcase what we do to, to sort of validate the core parts of the impact we have, in, you know, on our clients and why we're chosen and what differentiates us in the marketplace. But it's not. And that's pulling stuff off the shelf is harder. Right. Right. Wow. And then you know, also to circle back to something you said a little bit earlier is that you came from a space where, you know, velocity and mm-hmm. moving quickly. Like, I mean, it's not like you were just doing that for a couple of years. Like you're talking about being inside of a massive brand like JP Morgan Chase, where, you know, that is part of that culture of like, it's velocity, it's speed, it's fail fast, let's keep going. That's right. Now you're here. How, how was that for you to kind of, you know, dance with speed and growth, but also wanting to make an impact as a CMO and like solidify your seat at the table in a really hard role to do, by the way, in a really hard industry to do it, by the way. How, how do you dance with that? Because you have this pedigree, you have this experience, and then you're kind of having to slow down a little bit and kind of take a, take a beat, take a pause, but not for too long. Yeah. How do you kind of manage that? It's a great question. And I don't know if I have sort of the perfect answer for it. You know, some days you just pour yourself a glass of wine at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, but, but more, more honestly, I think it was, it was about trying to figure out what I can control and what I don't control Mm. and being comfortable with that dynamic, right? Trying to understand. So for example, I think where we were able to sort of move faster was within the confines of the marketing organization is in, you know, what our talent base looked like, where the big gaps were. For example, we've invested pretty significantly and we've self-funded a lot of this by making trade-offs on our our MarTech and our data infrastructure because we just didn't have the maturity that I believe we need to be the, be, be the organization we are. That I could do at my pace. But when it comes to things like how do we evolve, you know, evolve the brand? How does our brand and story change? How do we sort of bring our organization together to rally behind that change? That's taken much longer. How do you remove the subjectivity of it and bring a little bit of the client's voice into the mix versus, you know, the CMO's voice or the CEO's voice? Like it's like it's a it's a shift in how we think about it. So those things have taken longer. Uh, and you've got to you've got to sort of you know I, I you know I say to my team like you've got to keep finding the green shoots of change and impact. Mm. It's not you know it's not always you're not hitting you know the the home runs. That's okay if you're getting like the you know the ones and the twos here and there. That's that's good. That's mm-hmm. progress. And this idea of progress, not perfection, uh, and just mm. recalibrating the pace. Like it 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 like it took me a while to recalibrate the pace, but for the right reasons. The other thing that's I think is really interesting is, well, everything, but th- there is this very real thing of, you know, you're coming from another huge business, a massive business that has a culture in and of itself. And as the marketing leader, oftentimes you're the one that is kind of setting the tone for the culture of the business, right? Internally and externally. Mm-hmm. 
now you're coming from the outside, you know, coming into Broad Ridge, right? Another, you know, massive company where you're joining other executive leaders, you're joining a, a totally different culture, or maybe it's similar, I don't know. But talk about that a little bit of like, how do you assess culture in a new org like that? What are some of the things that you notice? Are you trying to bring cultural change right away? You, you got to build trust with the executive leaders. You have to, you know, your team, so many interesting facets of your role, but you're also like the, you, you know, oftentimes the chief culture officer is the CMO in my experience. How do you, how do you dance with that? It's a delicate dance. Mm-hmm. It's not a short-term thing, right? You've got to, when it comes to sort of sh- shaping culture, taking the good and the bad and trying to sort of influence it, you've got to play a little bit of the long game. Um, And again, one of the reasons I joined the organization was that I felt it was a culture that that sort of was aligned with my values. Uh, It deeply cared about uh, its associates. It had this entrepreneurial orientation to it, but it was incredibly ambitious and driven, but but not at the expense at sort of the core values of the company. And so there was a lot about the culture that I loved that brought me in here that I still see and I'm part of the team that wants to preserve all of those things. I think that said, there is, a, there, you know, we're, when I think about sort of parts of our culture that we could, we could work on, like we're not that good for change. We like operating the way we are. And mm-hmm. so part of it is, again, like appreciating that these things take time recognizing it and then starting to shift it. For me, the way I've influenced it, at least in marketing, is to is to show that it's possible without losing something we have by bringing in other people who believe in that change, right? Who know that change doesn't have to be harsh. Change can be positive and uplifting and holding the optimism through. Uh, I think uniting my team around a shared purpose of where we're going being very, very transparent around what's working and what's not and where we can do better. But having that honest dialogue, right, versus trying to move something, you know, individually, uh, I think is, has, been, has been helpful. But, it, but you've got to play the long game. I think so much of this is you've got to play the long game. You need to sort of have a sense of what you want, but then slowly, very intentionally move towards it. And culture has been no different. That's awesome. And you're, you know, you're, you're, we're venturing into what I really want to spend some time on, which is, you know, the, the challenges and nuances of legitimizing the role of a CMO in a traditionally conservative B2B environment. Right. And I'm just curious, could you share some insights on the unique challenges and opportunities of marketing in a traditional B2B environment, especially in a company like Broadridge? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a bunch, right? So, and again, there's a, there's a, I saw a, a bunch of challenges only because I came from, like I said, a much more progressive and, and mature marketing organization that was driving real measurable value because it had the ability to do it as a B2C organization. Uh, you know, and so in B2B, there's a little bit of, of translating what is possible, right? For example, uh, you know, one of my early conversations with some of the leaders where we think about driving demand, what's realistic? In driving demand. Mm. Mm. How much demand do we drive today based on whatever little attribution we can do? Even if we double it, does it make a dent? So is driving demand even something we should be focused on? Or is our job really just sort of building the brand and making sure that the brand is being able to sort of create consideration? So when the sales teams, which is a direct sales organization, goes in, you've sort of warmed up the hearts and the minds of, of our clients and our prospects 
Is that our only job? How could you use data, technology, and insights better? So there's a little bit of discovery that we're doing that I think mm. has will help us answer this question of what can we do? And, you know, the, the other place I looked at uh, was, you know, I did talk to a lot of sort of peers in the industry, you know, who had been in B2B for a while to try and just understand from them. And they were incredibly generous in sharing sort of their feedback, both their sort of the, the wins and, and the challenges. Uh, mm-hmm. So I could factor that in. That actually helped me sort of recalibrate my pace as well. But it was it was about, okay, like, I can't go claim this power to drive demand unless I have the right infrastructure, unless my website actually works, unless, you know, I have I have the way to test and learn the way to do it. So so we might be incremental for a little while, so we're making it better. Meanwhile, we're building our infrastructure to be able to have some exponential impact. One of the playbooks that we know works, you don't want to mess with it. Right. So it wasn't about driving change just for the sake of it. So so that's been a little bit of the journey of, of in a B2B organization like ours. Where do we feel comfortable with the value we're delivering? We're doing that today with a really, really strong PR and analyst program that top down helps build our brand and, and reinforces our, the credibility, and which is really important for us in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to sort of more traditional product marketing and client engagement, what does that look like? Uh, we spend a substantial part of our budget on events, right? Should we, what's working in that playbook? What's not working on the playbook? So there's a little bit of like revalidation of like what it is we're doing today successfully. And are we comfortable with that role we have? Uh, and, you know, whether that is where uh, we want to be in the future. But it, it's, you just can't apply. I can't just take the B2C playbook and say, Boop, let's plug that back in here. Yeah. Is there ABM, heavy ABM strategies and approaches there? Can you share like maybe what's working, what you're innovating on in in the ABM world? Yeah. I mean, listen, our biggest learning in ABM, we've had a lot of starts and stops in ABM uh, and there are two drivers to that. One has been our data infrastructure. Can we actually operationalize ABM in a consistent fashion without it feeling like it's, you know, it's um, we're working out of Excel worksheets and we're trying to sort of connect the dots. So so we've got a bunch of work happening there. We've got some tests in market right now where we're using intent data with a few focused clients to see are we driving the needle and are we learning from it. But the more important one for us was we were doing ABM as a marketing program. When you do ABM okay. as a marketing program, it is not a sales account management marketing program. It's a marketing program that you're bringing to sales. And so that's the other shift we're trying to make is how does this become a sales program that marketing is helping facilitate and work through? So it's a little bit of like the mindset. It's how you operationalize it. The role you sort of assign, not just to the marketer, but the accountability that the sales team has in making ABM successful. That has been, you know, that's taken a little bit longer, but we're starting to make some progress there. And you talked about, you know, demand gen, brand awareness, and kind of determining, okay, where are we going to focus the effort? Both are obviously important, but is one kind of rising up where it's like, wow, we're seeing, let's really double down on demand gen or, you know, brand awareness and and here's why, Mm -hmm. or is it still exploratory? Listen, I've always tried to sort of look at them in the same paradigm uh, because they sort of feed off each other. So I don't know if I will ever be in a situation that says brand building is more important than demand gen. I would say the maturity of what we do is a little different in both. I think there's a little bit more maturity in sort of how we're activating the brand from sort of the traditional sort of brand building perspective 
there's sort of some good progress on the traditional demand gen side, but you know we're at the cusp of sort of some new tools and some new capabilities that's going to help us start to move the needle even further on the demand gen side. But it's always sort of seen in one full paradigm of how do they sort of interact with each other. Okay, love it. You talked a little bit earlier, and I want to go. I want to collect on this a little bit. The you know the macro trends that are reshaping this financial landscape. Um, specifically, I want to double click into consumer behavior shifts and just you know what you and your team are noticing around the ways consumer behavior, especially post pandemic, has impacted you know fintech innovation and adoption. What are you seeing in terms of consumer behavior shifting? I'll talk about two trends that actually are very, very connected to our business. One is sort of the democratization of investing, right? It's the cost, given sort of the, the zero cost of investing right now, we've got more people coming into becoming investors, right? Much earlier in, 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 the, in the journey. Uh, and while they may not put that much money into investing, they're still investing. And that's a big shift, right? And that's a shift that's impacted asset managers, it's impacted wealth managers, uh, it's a it's a big driver of some of our growth, the fact that there's more investors in the market today. And then I'll sort of connect it back to the consumer behavior. I think not only is there more investors in the market today, how they want to be served is very, very different. Uh, where we play in, for example, is we process about 9 billion communications for our clients every single day, whether that's your statement, whether that's your proxy document, whether that's your, you know, there's... There's so, whether that's, you know, your, your annual report that you get from your mutual fund provider, like there's this in terms, there's so much communication that we enable. And a large part of what we've been doing is digitizing that. And where consumer behavior comes in is, is we're, you know, we're helping our clients think about digitization, not just in terms of you're stopping print and you're putting a PDF in someone's hand. We're spending a lot of time helping them think about how do you make that communication more engaging? How do you dr- derive value from it? How do you use that that single email that gets delivered, the single statement that you open to become much more of a marketing tool to be able to deliver a story or to educate or to reinforce? How do you use your data better to make the insights when you think about your experience as a as an investor and the statements you get? Like it's a whole bunch of numbers. Like how, you know, what if that became a little bit more insightful? Here are the three things you need to hear about. Here's four mm-hmm. things you need to be aware of. So that's the work we're doing, I think, in, in, you know, from, a, from a macro trend perspective that, that lines up to the need for relevancy and personalization in omni-channel digital communications. What does that look like? How do you enable it at scale? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we're doing some pretty cool work there. Is there, you said omni-channel, is there a channel that you, that's just doing really well? like doing really well across the, the product portfolio? Is there one that like, this is where, you know, Broadridge is actually kicking ass? I mean, listen, we're doing a lot with sort of just digital communications, right? Like we, mm. we at one point in time, were one of the largest printers in the country, right? Now, almost close to 80% of our communications is digital. And some of it's mm. sort of more traditional in terms of like, here's your PDF and here's a link to your PDF. But the work we're doing where we're really making a difference is how we're mining data and customer preferences to build more engaging experience. And that's where we're seeing some magic happen and we're really, really good at it. Mm. Okay. Let's spend a little bit of time and this inevitably happens. We're, you know, coming up at the, you know, the end of our amazing conversation. I, I tell Hillary, we need two hours with these executives. Dang it. We need two hours. I want to touch on AI. I certainly want to touch on AI before we get into the impacts of kind of the advancements of AI and machine learning in, in fintech, particularly, I want to ask you as a marketing executive and a leader, 
How are you, if at all, using AI in your role as a marketing leader? Are you using it for anything at all? Are, are you are you allowed to use it in your role? Just your thoughts from a, from an executive perspective. How are you using it, if at all? Yeah, I mean, listen. I would say personally, I'm sort of exploring it. Right, we're not using okay. it sort of as a as a defined process in anything yet. But we're exploring okay. ways to use it, whether it's content generation, whether it's design. I think even before content generation becomes sort of the norm, I think design, there's just so much you can do with NAI and design. So there's some exploration that is happening there. Mm-hmm. So on the marketing side, I'd say we're in sort of early, early days of kicking the tires and understanding how this sort of fits into our ecosystem. How does it help us go faster? How does it, but we're watchful. Um, okay. Where we are sort of seeing some incredible work happening with Gen AI is actually in our product development side, where, oh. where one of the pioneers in sort of bringing a few AI products to market, we have a Bond, Bond GPT product that sort of has, has been brought in the fixed income trading side, which has been uh, just incredible. It was developed incredibly quickly with great care and has, and has sort of really helped redefine the brand, you know, taking back sort of that that example in the work it has done to help our brand deliver on our promise of transformation and innovation has been amazing but we've got a bunch of uh, a bunch of prototypes right now that we're working on one gpt being something we already have in market uh, that okay. has been very exciting to sort of see getting developed in-house and, and then we have the benefit as marketers to bring it to market quickly would love to also get your perspective on blockchain and, and cryptocurrency kind of influencing the space. What influence are blockchain technology and the rise of cryptocurrencies having on the traditional financial services landscape? I will be the first one to say it, I am not the expert, uh, but I will say two things. One for us, and this is going back to sort of the Broadridge point of view on this, is we're actually using blockchain very actively in, in our capital market space. We have a product that uses digital assets called digital ledger repo uh, for the repo market. And that's been great for us to sort of bring to market and sort of see how it helps transform and disrupt what's traditionally a space that hasn't had that much disruption for a really long time and could probably use it. On the on the crypto side, again, I think the, the, the thinking we have been focused on is disclosure, right? When when I talk about the role Broadridge has empowering investing. A large part of what we do is we help communicate disclosures so to keep investors out of harm's way. What does that look like in crypto? What role do we play in enabling it from a customer preference perspective on delivering that that information? So we've done some work there, uh, both with you know the, the industry and some academics, uh, as well as some research in the space on what do customers and investors want when you start to think about disclosure in, in crypto. When you when you think about like macro view of the marketing strategy at Broadridge, coupled with your experience, your perspective, you know, coupled with your goals and where you're headed with the business, what parts of it do you love to like dive into as a leader? Because I, I, I find there's some leaders that have a product background, you know, or an, an, an engineering background, et cetera. So there's parts of the business where they kind of can can nerd out on and still be a leader, of course. Is that what aspects of like the marketing game as a leader do you love still to this day that maybe you don't have to spend time doing, but like you have expertise there and you have experience there. What part of it is is still grabbing your attention? Yeah, I mean, listen, I the reason I'm a marketer is because I discovered something that brought art and science together and I thrive in mm. it, right? I love mm. the creative process. 
and like obsessing over the creative process and storytelling and, and bringing sort of stories to life. And then I, you know, and, and this, the science side of it, like I said, was really something I, I was able to do at Scale at Chase was using data to make things better in terms of outcomes, in terms of client experiences, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I actually like find myself geeking out on sort of the two ends of the spectrum. I spend a lot of time on that storytelling side. It's that little bit of the crystallizing the idea. How do you get it done? Obsessing over how our brand shows up. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, like I said, we are now in a journey to build out our infrastructure. We have a we have a new leader on our data analytics side who I spend a lot of time with because I love going deep into where's the data? What are we seeing? How are we going to make it better? What's sort of the next milestone in the maturity model? Because I know that is really what's going to help drive our future. So it's, it's a little bit of both ends of the spectrum. Okay. I would be remiss if we didn't touch on this, on how you view kind of integrating sales and marketing, right? Um, how, what are, what are, what's your approach there? Again, you're coming into a business a couple of years ago, you're entering into it. There's a sales org there, obviously. Yes. Very what are some of the things one. you're... Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Um, what What are some of the things you're doing to you know bring that alignment? Was it already really tight when you got there, or some things you noticed? Wow, we get to be facilitate even more alignment. Take us into your process there. Yeah, I mean, listen, the process has been a little bit of sort of establishing where we are, right? Like having a level of clarity on what today looks like, and and reading into it before making any assumptions, and then also understanding the context of why we are with the way we are. You know, a large part of, like I said, what I've been trying to do is to not make sure I've, I come in with sort of these assumptions of what good and bad should be. It's a little bit of sort of calibrating as I learn. Uh, and I've tried to do the same with with a sales organization. Like I said, we have a very, very successful sales organization that's done incredibly well with record sales without a highly mature marketing organization in terms of sort mm. of both, you know size and resources and, and, and the, the ability to really activate. And so knowing that, I have to build belief with them. I have to show them we can do more than what we do today. And so that's been part of the process. Part of the process is really active, regular dialogues of being able to understand where, they're, where things are working, where things aren't working, how I can help them pinch hit in some of these places. Uh, but at the same time, know that eventually I know that this, these two organizations have to just work seamlessly together for us to get to the land of like really accelerating progress. But even, you know, I'll give you an example. I'm spending more time with our sales leaders talking about what we see their website. Right? They have, they've never sort of thought of their website as something they, that they could care about. But it's not just saying this, these are the number of people we got to the website or this is our click-through rate or this is our bounce rate. It's about, did you know that these five accounts are spending more time on our website than others? These three relationships are spending more time with this part of our capability set on the website. That's like real intelligence that then excites them. So being able to find things that they can actually sort of tangibly use uh, and then continuing to prove that we can do more and more in partnership with them, whether that's on the ABM side of it, or it's on just sort of driving demand through our product marketing efforts, where a little bit of sort of, let's let's prove a little bit more value before we, we kind of ask to re-engineer anything. I got to ask this, and this might have been an early, it should have been a beginning question, but you know, you're, you're, inter, you're, you're in the fintech industry that, you know, like many, many, many sectors within this, this tech and finance is historically been male dominated, right? 
you've chosen an industry and not only chosen an industry that's mostly male dominated, there's shifts happening there. Yep. Um, um, but it's like, where does this come from in you? Where does this like this resilience, this competitor, this like, I got this because you're playing at the highest level. And I'm just curious, like, where is that early, early days, mom and dad supporting you? Is that because, look, you've chosen to climb a ladder that most people will just look up and say, OK, good, good luck. But the people who are able to climb that yeah. and do it well are fascinating to me. Where does that come from in you? I think part of it is is a little bit of sort of my heritage. And, and you know, I'm, I'm good with change and I'm good with uh, problem solving. Um, mm. and, and that's just at a core of who I am. Uh, I can be very adaptive. Uh, I'm also relatively, I'm very driven and have, I'm tenacious, but I'm also patient. Uh, and I can sort of, pl- you know, I can play the long game and try and sort of bring people along on the ride. Uh, that's part of, that's just who I am. But I also grew up in the military. You know, I was sort of used to, you know, environments that were, that were strong and community built, but also evolving, right? I moved every two years. I had to make friends again. I had to, right? So you sort of, you're, you find, I find comfort in change. And I think that's sort of given me a level of ability to navigate. And then I did, I have a, I had a dad who just sort of instilled a level, who had a level of trust in me and gave me the comfort that and the confidence that I could do things that I never thought I was able to do, right? And I think that that inherently keeps me grounded and makes me a little bit more tenacious uh, and tenacious in, in not a bad way. Just like, I'm, you know, I, I can withstand, uh, you know, situations that, you know, some others may or may not feel comforted in. I've been lucky. Listen, yes, I work in a, in a highly male dominated organization, but culturally it's, it's incredibly inclusive and welcoming. Mm. So there's no sharp elbows, right? Like there's, okay. so there's a little bit of like, you're given permission to sort of be yourself and find your voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to earn it, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got to put in the work, but it, it is a culture that when you do put in the work and when you are a good listener and you're willing to sort of prove yourself, then, then, then you're given the right of passage. So, so I have, and again, like by the way, Chase, it was the opposite. Uh, it was, I was surrounded by some incredible female leaders and just mm. watching them in action helped me find yeah. my voice a little bit more. Wow. And so it's a little bit of sort of the heritage, but, but, but I think a lot of it was just watching it's some incredible female leaders at JP Morgan kind of drive change, make a difference and speak their mind. And, um, it sort of gives you, it gives you uh, a level of confidence in yourself. Amazing. Let's do some fun lightning round questions. Okay. Yeah. Okay. First one, if you could travel back in time, what single piece of advice would you give your younger self? Keep going. Keep Keep going. going. I like it. I love it. If you could have any superpower for a day, what would it be and why? I think it would be the power of making people believe. If you could have dinner with any historical figure or celebrity, dead or alive, who would it be? I would love to have dinner with Taylor Swift. Oh, now you just made our producer's day. She is the, the Taylor Swift fan, Hillary. I know she's doing jumping jacks. There you go. Great answer. All-time favorite answer. Um, if you weren't in your current job as global CMO at Broadridge, what completely different career path might you pursue? I would love to be a travel photographer. Oh, okay. If you were stranded on a deserted island and can only take three items, what are they? My phone. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and with the phone comes, I would have, then my next thing would have said pictures of my kids and my family. Okay. Uh, but I, hopefully that comes with the phone. 
uh, a book. Right. Okay. And water. Okay. Okay. Um, what is one song that you love to belt out when you're alone, but would never admit to others? Uh, you know what? I am. I am sort of being in the Swifty mode right now. So it's usually like you know the the Taylor Swift song of choice of you know of the week, which is deeply embarrassing to my thirteen year old. Okay. okay. Um, in a zombie apocalypse, which uh, fictional character would you want as your sidekick? This is lightning round. I don't know, Superman. That's what I was gonna say. Superman's a good. That's a great oh, first yeah. guess. Okay, la- last one. If you could use your marketing power to, you know, post a billboard around the world, what would your marketing message be to the world? Be kinder. Be kinder. Ne- that one never, never gets old. Love it. Dipti, thank you so much for being a part of this amazing conversation. Seriously epic. We are all paying attention to Broadridge. We are listening. We're paying attention. Good luck to you and the rest of the team there. And thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for checking out another episode of Business Insights and Inspiration on Marketing Trends. If you liked what you heard and are interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of marketing experts, reach out to info at mission.org to get the conversation started.